Here's an outline of where we're going. So those will be the headings that we'll work from so you can have an idea where we are in that. Uh, didn't print up outlines. Last couple classes, there were more outlines left on seats than taken. So I thought maybe they weren't helpful. If you want my notes, just get a hold of me on the city. And I'll be happy to give them to you. Let me open up with prayer. Father in heaven, thank you for uh, these men. And thank you for looking out, God, many of us, you know, the children you've given us and the children that you will give us. And pray, Lord, that you would help us tonight to have a, a, a sober view of the task you've called us to as fathers. And Lord, I ask you to equip us by your word and encourage us by your word and make us godly men. Not for our namesake, but for your namesake, God, because we know that we are here as your ambassadors representing you. And we know that we should reflect you, our Father, to the world around us. So, help us have right views of this tonight. And pray your name would be exalted and that you would be glorified in all that I say and all that we think through tonight. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Three foundational principles to get started with here. Number one, the Bible is sufficient for understanding fatherhood. The Bible is sufficient for understanding fatherhood. 1 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says, we'll have some scriptures we'll stay in for a bit longer. So, I'll, and I'll ask you to turn to those. But we'll also breeze through some and you can listen. 1 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. This verse is a great reminder that not only is the Bible sufficient for our understanding of fatherhood, Bible is sufficient for everything. So, as Christians, we don't need to go anywhere else other than the Bible. It doesn't mean that there aren't other resources that are helpful, uh, but those resources are only helpful as they help uh, land us in, in God's Word. So, everything that we're going to look at tonight and next Wednesday is going to be thoroughly biblical. We're, we're going to be looking at text and learning what it means to be a father. Number two, the primary goal of your fathering is the regeneration of your children. The primary goal. And by goal, the, the object of your ambition and effort. Now, some of you know that this is not a goal that you have within your power, the ability to secure 
but it is your goal. Certainly our goal is that God would be glorified in all things. When it comes to our kids, I assume none of us are praying that God would be glorified through our children remaining objects of wrath. Okay, our hope, our goal is that our children would be regenerated. So that is the goal. Not that they would be happy, hardworking, church-going, well-behaved, contributing citizens who are not in jail. That is not the goal. Our hopes are higher. We're not just after well-behaved children. Not all the well-behaved are regenerate, and not all the regenerate are well-behaved. So that's just sort of a trap anyway. The goal is not just to have children, but to have fruitful children. This is what we mean when we say our goal is regeneration. Our goal is not to just have children, but to have fruitful children. Not to just populate the earth, but to populate heaven. That is our goal. Not to produce chaff, to produce wheat. This is our goal. So many fathers are spiritually barren fathers in this sense, right? They have kids, but their kids never become their brothers and sisters. So this is our goal. This is my goal with my five children, is that my kids would become my brothers and sister. That is my ultimate hope. So the Bible is sufficient for understanding fatherhood. The primary goal of your fathering is the regeneration of your children. Number three, as fathers, the responsibility is all yours. All of it. I'm really glad that you all are here. And and being here, uh, I know may be a a good sign that perhaps we're already getting this. That as fathers, uh, this is our responsibility. Our wives are our responsibility. Our children are our responsibility. Some of you have heard me say this before. I learned this a long time ago. And when I sit down with a, uh, a couple for marriage counseling, I will very often... Um, if it's a, a husband and wife come in for counseling and they're having all manner of issues or problems and I have no idea at, at the beginning what, what the issues or problems are and I have no idea who's, uh, who's, who's culpable, who's, who's at fault. Um, but before the counseling even begins, often I'll look to him and I'll say something like, I, I want you to know that before we get into anything that I am going to hold you totally 100% responsible. Completely responsible. That doesn't mean that he's necessarily culpable. Most likely not. It doesn't mean that it's all his fault, but he is going to be held responsible. But more on this, more on this later on. So you'll see those are foundational principles. These are all going to come up more. The Bible is sufficient. This is all that we need. When it comes to fatherhood and fathering, our goal is the regeneration of our children. And as fathers, the responsibility is all yours, all of it. So turn to Matthew chapter 3. In Matthew chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Let's look at that together. Moving on now to number 2 here. There is a difference between active fathering 
and passive parenting. And I want you to see that here in this text. There is a difference between active fathering and passive parenting. Passive parenting is basically ignoring your children. That's what passive parenting is. Some fathers ignore their children declaratively through abandonment. That is passive parenting. Still parent, but some dads, I mean, this is rampant. I've heard statistics as high as, you know, nationally 40, 45% kids going to bed tonight and no dad in the house. He's just abandoned them. I've got a friend who works down at Martin Luther King Junior High School. You've heard this statistic before, and 90% of his male students do not have a father in the home. So some, some uh, fathers just ignore their kids by just declaring, I'm, I'm out of here, and abandoning. And other fathers ignore their children through abdication. So they're there, but they're not there. Still passive parenting, uh, still ignoring. In fact, I'm not... I'm not sure which is worse, by the way. I'm not sure which is worse. Uh, At least the dad that gets up and abandons, someone else, Lord willing, can come in and fill the role. One way to look at it. Both terrible. Passive parenting. One ignoring his child through abandonment. The other ignoring his child through through abdication. So so everyone, everyone in here, everyone, everyone has a father positionally, but very few today have a father practically. I mean, everyone has a father positionally, but but very few have a father practically. In other words, a good father, which hopefully we're going to get a handle on, you know, these next couple weeks. Very few today have a a good father. This is the premise of uh, one of the books that I've read recently uh, that I recommend that's good. Um, I, I think we have it in our library. Douglas Wilson wrote a book called Father Hunger. And that is the premise of this book, that there is a hunger, there is a hunger in the world today for real and good fathers. In fact, it it may, maybe some of you would agree with this because you've experienced, it, it may be the moral pandemic in our world today is fatherlessness. It is really is that bad. It's that bad. Uh, the failure to launch godly and good fathers. So, Matthew chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Um, Jesus is here being baptized, right? He is obviously not for forgiveness of sins. He's, I, he's identifying with His people. This is the very beginning of His public ministry. Uh, but what we want to see here is I want you to see God the Father interacting with His Son, Jesus. Because this is what we see in this text. God our Father with His Son, Jesus. So this is our adoptive Father with our elder brother. That's what we're reading here. Jesus is our elder brother, and this is our adoptive Father, God. So let's see how He relates to to His, His Son. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately He went up from the water and behold, the heavens were opened to Him and He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on Him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is My beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. So 
perhaps the very heart of fatherhood is right here. Perhaps the very heart of fatherhood, and we see the interaction of this father and son, the perfect father, the perfect son. Number one, we see six points here. Number one, we see that the father was there. The father was there. So God the Father is is present. He is not absent. That's important. The father was there and he was engaged. Okay, so this isn't abandonment. This isn't abdication. God the Father here with the Son. He's there and he's engaged. Right. So what does he do? He makes his presence felt by his Son. How? By sending the Holy Spirit. So he sends the Holy Spirit. He's engaged with the Son. He is there. He makes his presence felt. Then the Father, what else did he do? He made his presence known by speaking. He speaks to his Son. Number four, all of these now are, are what did he say? What was, what was his speaking about? The Father, first, he identified with his Son. What did he say? This is my boy. This is my son. He's claiming him as his son. Number five, the father expressed love for and to his son. Right? This is my son. This is my, what did he say? My beloved son. What is he telling his son? I love you. Expressing love to him. And then number six, the father praised his son. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And also note, he did this all publicly. He did this publicly. This isn't just a private moment between father and son. This is a public moment between the perfect father and our elder brother, Jesus Christ. And God was there. He made his presence felt. He was engaged. He spoke. He had things to say. He he spoke about the situation. He expressed his love for his son. He claimed his son as his own and he praised him. So so this is the good father. And this would be at the heart of a good father. These 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 things that we see working out in Matthew, chapter three, these these are at the heart of, of any good father. The opposite would be true. What is a bad father in regards to this text? Well, a bad father is not present. Or if he has to be physically present, he is emotionally absent. He doesn't speak a bad father. And so he doesn't identify with and claim his children. And claiming your children, that's a, that's a good thing. That's, that's the good kind of pride. Right, son, I'm proud of you. I mean, look at the shirt, right? Jackson and I were wearing matching shirts. What's on the back? His name is on the back. My name is on the back. This is my beloved son. And I am pleased with his, with his hard work. A bad father is not there. If he's there, he's not engaged. He doesn't have much to say. And so he's not identifying with his son. He's not claiming his son. He's not expressing love for his son. And he's not praising his son. Now, the tragedy of that is that a bad father is still a father. The tragedy is that a bad father is still a father. In other words, he, he, he's a positional father. He holds 
the position of father. And so by, in this case, a bad father, by his ways, he teaches his children what a father is and ultimately who God the father is. So this is what a bad father does. A bad father is still a father. So what does a bad father do? So a bad father lies about God. That's what a bad father is doing. A bad father is lying about God. He is telling lies about God the Father all the time. Uh, A few of you should, I think, maybe get some coffee. (laughs) I'm I'm not going to be as exciting as I am on Sunday morning, so I see your eyes. It doesn't bother me, though. Don't be embarrassed. Uh, So a bad father lies about God. He is telling lies about God the Father all the time. So why does a woman who had a terrible earthly father struggle so with the first line of the Lord's Prayer? Right? Our Father who art in heaven. If she had a terrible earthly father, what, what what has been taught to her about God the Father? A bunch of lies. A bunch of things that aren't true. Some of you men, you had lousy, lousy fathers. Maybe a couple good things. And you don't want to slander them and you want to honor them. And I, I appreciate that. But, but you know in your heart that they were not godly fathers. And so this gets projected onto God the Father because they told lies to you about who Father is. So the deal is that a father cannot opt out of fathering. He can't just say, you know what, never, I'm, I'm just not gonna, I'm not gonna father. No, you, by not fathering, you're teaching your children that a father doesn't father. You're teaching your children that a father abandons or that a father abdicates. So a father cannot opt out of fathering, but he can write a blasphemous and tragic spoof to his kids about God. But it's one or the other. He's either going to tell the truth about God by being a godly father, he's going to be an ungodly father, and he's going to write a a tragic and blasphemous spoof about who God the Father is to his his children. There is a difference between procreation and fatherhood. Fatherhood requires more than sperm. That's what we're saying. It's much, much more. Uh, Turn to Ephesians 5.1. I said the word sperm. That that woke you guys up. (laughs) We can laugh. Just just men here. (laughs) Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1. The next point then. So we're we're already leaning into this point on what we saw in Matthew chapter 3. Fatherhood then is based on our imitation of God the Father. So I'm going to be a father... What is that based on? What is that built on? What's built on imitating God the Father. God the Father. Uh, maybe for some of you, maybe to a degree, your fatherhood is based on imitation of your, of your earthly dads, but only as your earthly dads were good representatives of God the Father. So Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1 says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice 
to God. So we are to be imitate. We're, we're dearly loved children and we're to be imitators of God, our father. Ephesians 5, 1 says we are as Christians, we are God's adopted children. Really, truly. We are God's adopted children. It's not like he was just looking for a metaphor that would kind of help us get the. No, we are God's adopted children, his sons and daughters. And so God is to us who he is to our elder brother, Jesus. Right. So all of all that Jesus gets, we get and his inheritance is our inheritance. We're co-heirs with Christ. So who God, the father, like Matthew three. 16 and 17, who God, the father is to our elder brother, Jesus, as adopted children. This is who God, the father is to us. The book of Ephesians makes that explicitly clear. In fact, where where it talks about us as God's adopted children, and it basically speaks of us the same way that God spoke of Jesus in Matthew. We just read it as baptism. We learn that God is there for us in chapter one, verse three. That he makes his present felt by, by sending the same Holy Spirit to dwell within us. Right? God, our Father, he speaks to us. He claims us as his own. He expresses love to us and he is pleased with us in Christ. So be like your heavenly father. And this is the cool part. We should be like our heavenly father and we should be girded by our heavenly father. And strengthened by our Heavenly Father. So that means that God is a Father not only in front of us, He's our Father behind us. He's our Father in front of us as the ultimate example of of the kind of Father that we should be. But He's not just our Father in front of us, He's also behind us as our Father, encouraging us and strengthening us and, and moving us forward. And this is, incidentally, right? This is very good news for the fatherless. Because it means that you're actually not fatherless. This is what Scripture means. It says God is a father to the fatherless. So in in God's family, amongst Christians, there's no such thing as fatherlessness. There's no such thing. You cannot have an earthly father, but you have a, a greater heavenly father in God. So... So imitate God the Father. Imitate even what we read in Matthew chapter 3. Be, be there, simply put, right? Be there for, for your, your children. Uh, be there and, and be engaged. All right, I'll catch myself with my kids, but I'm not really with them. I'm there, but my mind's somewhere else. My heart is somewhere else. I'm, I'm looking at my phone. I'm, I'm watching the baseball game. I'm, I'm, I'm whatever. I'm, I'm, tuned, I'm tuned out. We want to be there. We want to be present. We should joyfully claim our children. We should speak and express our our love to them. We should praise them. We do that, we're off to a good start. Much more mechanics, though, next next week of how that works out. I turn to Genesis Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. Fathers, this next point, fathers are for. What are fathers for? Fathers are for providing and protecting. Keep them calm over there, would you? 
Fathers are for providing and protecting. So in this text, Genesis 2, most of you, you've, you've been in our sermon series, so you know we, we went through this. Um, Adam, at this point, he is a man alone in a garden. But soon, he's going to be given what? He's going to be given a wife, and he's going to be given children. One author describes he's going to be given a garden within the garden. Right? He's going to be given a, a family. Okay, but, but right now, here Adam is alone, and he's given his directions. And his directions have not been revoked. So these are our directions as men. These were never uh, rescinded. Genesis 2.15, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden, and here are the two words, to work it and to keep it. This was Adam's directions, and God reiterates it later. You are to work this garden and you are to keep this garden. This is your function. You are a worker and a keeper. You're a worker and a keeper. Then he gives him a wife and he gives him a family. And you're to work for this family and you're to keep this family. Depending on your, uh, what translation you have, there's other, there's other words that are used for, for these two words. First, okay, you're in the garden to work it. The word dress, dress it, cultivate it, tend it, till it, serve it, okay? provide is what he's saying. You're to provide for what God has, has given you and serve what God has given you and keep it. Other words for keep in your Bible, take care of, watch, protect, preserve. So this is what, this is what men are for. So it's what fathers are for, to provide and to protect. So Adam's going to sin in chapter 3, verse 6, right? He eats the fruit. And his sin of com- commission, by commission and omission, and every time you, commit, you, you have a sin of commission, it was preceded by a sin of omission. You weren't doing something you should have been doing, and you ended up doing something you shouldn't do. And his sin of commission was he broke Genesis 2, uh, 15, or no, 2, 17. If you eat of this fruit, you will surely die. He ate the fruit. That was a sin of commission, but his sin of omission was not doing Genesis 2.15. Not providing, not protecting. He failed to provide and he failed to protect. That was his sin of of omission. So an extended parenthesis here before we get into provision and protection. I don't want to overlook something obvious here. Before we get into provision and protection, let's not overlook the obvious. And the obvious thing is that Adam was a man. Adam was a man. Fatherhood is for men. Masculine men. Good dads are masculine. God didn't charge Eve the same way he charged Adam. And then he didn't call Eve to be a father. He called Eve to be a mother. He didn't call Eve to provide and protect. He called Adam to provide and protect. And he called Adam to provide and protect because God first made Adam a man. God made him a masculine man. God the Father is masculine. Now, God the Father is not a male. That would be heresy. 
God does not have a gender. God is spirit, right? So God is not male, but God is masculine. C.S. Lewis, our father, says this. Since God is, in fact, not a biological being and has no sex, what can it matter whether we say he is a he or a she, father or mother, son or daughter? But this is very important. But Christians think that God himself has taught us how to speak of him. You see what he's saying? Saying we address God as our father. God is declares himself in scripture as him, as he. That does not mean that he is a male. It means that he is masculine. And fathers, earthly fathers, if they're going to be like their godly father, they must to be masculine. So what is masculinity? We should answer that. What is masculinity? Well, it's not stereotypical machismo, right? That's not what it is. Certain behavior and activity may flow more frequently from masculinity, but it's not essentially masculine. So it's not driving a truck. So that's pretty cool. It's not smoking cigars. It's not um, watching a football game. It's not going to Home Depot. Watching is not hunting. It is all stereotypical masculinity. And those things might come, you know, and flow from men for various reasons, but it's not essentially what masculinity is. So Here's one way to look at it. And I, I've drawn this from um, Douglas Wilson's book, Father Hunger. You are masculine when you happily assume sacrificial responsibility. That's biblical masculinity. So you're being masculine when you happily assume sacrificial responsibility. Not when you hunt, not when you drive a truck, not when you go to Home Depot. This is what real masculinity is. Masculinity is the happy assumption of sacrificial responsibility. Another word that you and I should think of when we think of masculinity is authority. I wanted to say responsibility first, but... Another word that we should think of when we think of masculinity is authority. Um, God, gives, God gives men authority. God gives husbands authority. God gives fathers authority. And that does mean you're in charge. It's okay. That is what it means. It means that, that you are in charge. Husbands, fathers, you are in charge of your household. It means that, that it's okay to give directives in your home. It's okay to give instructions to your, your children, to your wife. Uh, you will make decisions. Okay? God has given you the authority to, 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 to do this. But why He has given you this authority and how you use this authority is crucial. And we're going to get back to responsibility now. So God has given us as fathers authority but why has He given us that authority and how we use this authority, that is what is crucial. 
Okay, what's the biblical word for this authority? Anyone? Headship. The biblical word for authority, okay? So the authority that that masculine God has. The authority that masculine Jesus has. The authority that masculine husband has. The authority that masculine father has. The authority that masculine male elder in a church has, right? Okay? That is called headship. And that authority is given to men so that your hands are not tied. So that you can actually lead and do something. But what is it you are to do? And how are you to do it? And the answer is the authority has been given so that your hands are not tied in your effort to happily assume sacrificial responsibility for everything that God has put in your care. So having authority does not mean the right to boss people around. Right? Okay, yes, you can boss people around. The authority, yes, yes, if your wife argues, you have a verse. Don't recommend that, but you, you do. But that is, not, that is not why God gives us authority. It is not so we can push people around. Having authority means being bestowed with the honor of assuming sacrificial responsibility for things and people. That is why God gives authority. So this is not a lording over authority. It's a, it's, it, it's a bringing under authority. So it's not an authority with your family that you lord over them. It's an authority that you bring under them and you use and leverage to help them. There's a difference between asserting your authority and utilizing your authority for the good of others. Because fathers, we should never we should never have to assert our authority. That's just that positional father thing. When you assert authority, there's probably been a, a problem that has gotten you to the point where you're having to say, "Listen, I am your father," and, and, I, and I've said this to my kids before. I am your father, and you will show me respect, and you will honor me. You will salute the uniform said that minute they have no idea what that means my wife is do you think they're even no probably not i'm just talking and words are so effective with kids so if we're asserting our authority there's you know something's already gone gone awry our authority is something that we should be leveraging and utilizing for for good now think about it this way what is the basis? So who is ultimate? Who is the ultimate authority over us? Jesus Christ, right? Specifically, I mean, first Corinthians 11, three, you trace that God, the father is his head, but Christ is the head of the church. So he has ultimate supreme authority. Now, now think about this. What is the basis for the authority of Christ? His shed blood. That's why all authority flows to him. Because he has happily assumed sacrificial responsibility. It's by his shed blood. Ephesians 5.25, right? It tells us to imitate Christ. What did Christ do? He gave himself up 
for the church. What does that mean? He gave himself up. That means he took responsibility and quite literally sacrificed himself. He died for us. Well, that the question for us is, as fathers is, are we bleeding? Are we bleeding? Literally. For, right, for our families, are we bleeding? We are masculine and we are good fathers. We're on the right track, right? When we assume responsibility the way Christ assumed responsibility. Listen, Jesus cleaned up messes that were not His. And Jesus took the rap for things that He did not say and things that He did not do. He came to die for the sins of His people. And as fathers, we're called to... That's that great mystery in Ephesians 5. What Christ does for the church, that's our example. Husbands to your wives, fathers to your children. This is our examples. Husbands, fathers will be held responsible. So there may be times where... Uh, are, and there, there will be times where there'll be... Uh, conflict or there'll, there'll be an issue in our home, right? There will be problems in our home, a lot of them, right? There will be issues in our home and there will be times where we really are not culpable. It's not our fault. Now, let's say you are at work and your wife is at home and all by herself, you know, miles away from you, no contact. She just gets herself into some trouble. Right? You could make a strong case, right, that you may not be culpable, right? It is it is her fault. She got herself into sin. But here's what we cannot say biblically. We cannot say it is her fault, therefore it is her responsibility. Now she has responsibility. Maybe a better way of saying it is this. It's her fault, so it is not my responsibility. We, we cannot biblically say that. We cannot say it is her fault and so it's not my responsibility. We, we can't say it is, it is her issue and therefore it is not my problem. Understanding masculinity, there is not a more emasculating thing that we can do or say. Right? If masculinity is assuming sacrificial responsibility, then it's your fault you deal with it, it's your problem, it's your issue, it's, it's not my deal, then, then we, when we, if we say that, and I've done that, we are emasculating ourselves. That's real emasculation. It's just not how, it's not how God made the world. Amen! <laughs> told you. So, culpability, culpability, okay, your lack of culpability in a, an issue or situation does not negate our responsibility as fathers. So that, that first foundational principle, we're just fleshing that out more here, is that responsibility flows uphill. Christ assumes responsibility for things which are not His fault, and we picture that to our wives and to our children. Back to provision and protection. Providing and protecting. Okay, so right, he's in the garden to work it and to keep it. So fathers are for providing and protecting. Let's look at both of those. First, provision, right? Or dress, cultivate, tend, till, serve. 
Okay, the idea here is give, 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 right? Care for, pour out, pour out, pour out. Give yourself, give your time, give your gifts, give your energy, give your words, give your affection, deny yourself, sacrifice yourself. We want to be spent for our, our wives and our kids. We want to totally just exhaust ourselves, right? Out loving everybody, not worried about it is, you know, Worldly phrases like, hey, this is give and take. <laughs> it's not biblical thinking. Biblical thinking is give, 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 give. You say, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dry up. Well, not if you're a Christian. Not if you're an adopted son or daughter. Well, your filling comes from Christ. Your filling, you, you'll, you'll be okay. He will take care of you. So we don't, we're not, it's not self-preservation. It's not I give so that I get something. It's not that, hey, I've been, I've been, uh, you know, like with our wives, I've been really sweet for the last few days. And I'm thinking tonight should go really well for us. Do you catch yourselves thinking that? I do. Compensation. I have been such a good husband. Shouldn't something happen at this point? <laughs> That's not biblical thinking. That's not godly. We don't we don't we don't look for a return on our investment. So providing we are giving, giving, giving. Practically speaking, I just learned this recently and I think I talked about it in the in the parenting class too, but say yes to your children as much as you possibly can. And think about God our Father. Think about God our Father. I mean, He is a yes God who gives freely and pours out whether we deserve it or not. Say yes to your kids and help them to see that every no is really a yes. (laughs) So, one way of saying that is never say no to your children. Don't ever say no to your children. And what I mean by that is when you say no, help them to understand what you're saying yes to. Can I have, it's 8.30 at night. Can I have a handful of chocolate chips? No. No, you may not. I'm going to punish you for asking. No, you may not. But no to candy before bed is yes to a good night's sleep. See how that works. Help them to understand that. No to a lot of television is yes to not growing up stupid. (laughs) No to public school is yes to an education. I'm just kidding. (laughs) I'm just kidding. I just had to throw that in there. No to immodesty is yes to keeping predators away from your daughter. No, you cannot wear that. But I am saying yes to denying predators. So help your kids to see this. That, so really what we're doing then is we are always selflessly providing and we're never selfishly withholding. We're never selfishly withholding. So every time you, you say no to your kids, ask yourself, why are you saying no? This will sound silly. But some of you know this, and I, I am a I love food, 
I love food. I love good food. I love good food and, and good drink. And one of the things that's been difficult for me since I was a little kid is, is sharing food and drink. It is, it is, it's really tough for me. My friend Pat comes over every Sunday, and he, he knows us, and he just cooks ridiculous amounts of food. And I, I will not have to share. It's not helpful. And so I'll, I just caught this, you know, a few months ago. And often when I'm eating, you know, this meal that I love, my kids come up to me, or a dessert that I love, and they ask me for a bite. Now, you know how many kids I have. And you know what happens if I give one of them a bite. So, yeah, so if I give him a bite, I am saying no to the rest of my, the rest of my, my plate. I'd ask myself, okay, why? and I, it was just, I never even thought about it, just no. No, you had your food. You had your dessert. You already, you, were, you already had dinner. You know, this is dad's food. This is dad's dessert. And then one time I said no, and it hit me. Because I, I probably just, you know, taught it. You know, always think about why you're saying no. And <laughs> here I am. And I realized that I was selfishly withholding. I was selfishly withholding. It may seem silly, but I was selfishly withholding. And I, I wasn't selflessly um, providing. It, it wasn't a good no. So that is what we want to do. Like God, offer a garden of yes with a tree of no in the middle of it, not the other way around. Right? That's the picture in the garden. It is a garden of yeses. And there's one tree in the middle of it that's a no. And that's really... That is our Lord. That is God. You say, no, I read the Old Testament. God is just rule after rule after rule after rule. Not really. Not really. You could boil down all those rules into Ten Commandments in Exodus 5 and Deuteronomy 20. And then the New Testament boils it down to one sentence. That's all it is. One rule. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbors yourself. That's it. Yes, 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 yes. So we want our life to be like that. We don't want a garden of no with a tree of yes if you're good. That's not. That's not providing. Uh, it's demonic. First Timothy four three, uh, no's with with you know just for the sake of saying no is demonic. Uh, those who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Who's saying that? It's demons. It's demonic doctrine. Saying no for the sake of saying no is demonic, according to 1 Timothy 4.3. And 1 Timothy 5.8 in regards to provision, if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. That is, a, that is a big thing to say. It does not say, if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he, he could use some work. It says he, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. It means you are like someone who doesn't even love, know and love God. What is, what is a sign Okay, of someone who does not know and love God, but rather hates God. A sign of that is a man who has a family and doesn't want to say yes to them and doesn't want to provide for them and doesn't want to meet their needs. The second one is protection. Protection. So we do all of that providing without neglecting our duty to protect. They go together. Okay, you're on the couch with your family, but you're also in the watchtower. 
providing for them, you're with them, but you're also you're also on guard, protecting your family. Right? You have a you have a permit to carry a concealed weapon. Right? You're at the party and you're shaking hands, but you're packing heat. Providing, but also protecting. You are a suspicious father. That's okay. Especially if you have girls. I'm learning this. <laughs> you are suspicious, and I will become more suspicious. I'm already looking at like two-year-old boys looking at Avery going, what the? <laughs> better, better watch it, pal. <laughs> Talk to your father. Watchful. Uh, welcoming and inviting and tender eyes for your wife and children and narrow eyes for the junior high boy that's interested in your daughter. So the providing, welcoming, loving, you know, open eyes for my family, but my eyes are narrow over here. Or the flippant Bible teacher of your kids, your eyes are narrow on him because you're wanting to protect. Or your wife's female friend that is guilting her into formal ministry. Whatever it is. That's not a real example, by the way. <laughs> like, oh, someone's messing with Kristen. No. Whatever it is, right? Because the eye is what I'm providing. Okay, so I'm taking care of the camp here. But I'm also in the watchtower. And I'm also guarding. I'm also keeping. I'm also protecting. I'm also looking. Sin came into the world because Adam did not pick a fight, remember. Sin, I mean, his family got messed up. I mean, sin came into the world because Adam did not pick a fight. Who should he have picked the fight with? Satan. There was three. There was, it was a party of three. Satan, a husband, and a wife. And it went like this. It went Satan, wife, husband. And it should have gone Satan, husband, wife. And sin came into the world because Adam did not pick a fight. And he should have. He should have protected. So, again, masculinity and as men, there, there is necessary, there needs to be, there is necessary and imperative violence in your life. As men, we are built to fight regardless of what new laws in the military now say. right? Men are built to fight. Men are for war. And we can get caught in the trap of, as husbands and fathers of picking the wrong fights. Right? Fighting with our wives, struggling with our wives, struggling with our children, instead of fighting our great enemy. Right? We are, we're dragon slayers. We are to be dragon slayers. We are to fight the great dragon. Men of war, men of violence, men who are, are ready to fight spiritually, protecting our family. And so incidentally, in regards to fatherhood too, uh, we must train boys to be future men by not taking the fight out of them. Well, if you have boys, right, we do not want, and you see it in boys, and now I've got the, you know, Matt recently too, we've got the contrast now. We started with boys and then God brought us this girl and we like, wow, there's a difference. You know, these, these boys are just, they're just, they're violent. 
are violent. They're violent for a reason. They're tough for a reason. They're built to fight for a reason, not to fight their wives, not to, not to fight their kids, not to lord it over people, but to fight for what is good, fight for what is right, to fight their great enemy. We do not want to take the fight out of our, out of our boys. We just want to redirect their blows. We want to redirect their blows. So we do not have a no, you know, we don't have any no fighting rules at our house. But anytime a fight breaks out, the, what's the, what is the question, right? What are you fighting for? Okay. No, you're not allowed to fight each other. But we're not saying fighting is bad. But don't fight each other. I mean, physically, there, there's there's times certainly where we may need to fight. But I mean, these these are this is war. This this is fighting. Reading your Bible. That is that is that is getting in the fight. And masculine, godly men will pick up that sword and they will use it and they will learn it and they will learn how to wield it. Now, teaching our boys to read, to pray. Pray is, prayer is war, is battle. Teaching them to sing, to sing, to lift their voices to God, to praise God. That is, that is fighting the dragon. To, to think, to use their minds, to actually think through things, to be honest, to control themselves, and, and on and on. We need to teach our boys that men fight and men are mighty, but that the real mighty men don't take hold of a city, they take hold of themselves. Proverbs 16, 32. Okay, second to last topic. Let's talk about leading your wife in child-rearing. Three principles here. And next week, we'll look at um, teaching doctrine to your kids, evangelizing your kids, disciplining your kids, setting standards, just some of those mechanics of of, of fatherhood. But but how uh, how do I how do we lead our our wives in this? This isn't this is important because many of you are going to go home and she's going to ask you how the class was. So this is this we're just going to work on our answers right now. <laughs> Because they're going to ask their friend. We want to make sure that we, you know, we're a united front as we go home. No, but I mean, this sort of involves her, does it not? It does. So, so she's going to ask how the and, and 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 so we're going to we're going to go, even go home tonight, some of us, and we're going to be off to the races, and we we're going to need to lead. We're going to need to lead our wives. Um, she is our other half. You know, I mean, she we are one, so it's probably even more. You know, it's even stronger, more significant than that. Uh, but we are we are one with our wives. She uh, she is our helper, right? Genesis two eighteen. She is our helper, and so um, in all of this, especially next week with the practical stuff, we've we've just got to be in sync with our wives. This isn't a just I'm going to go home and I'm going to do this and just sit back and enjoy the ride, honey, because it's going to be awesome. We're, we're, we don't do that. We need to make sure that we're we're carrying our wife's conscience with us. That, that we have her heart. That she she knows what we're doing and 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 why we're doing it. Um, and we want to we want to coordinate these things with her. But we're going to we're going to want to when we go home we're going to want to say more than it was it was fine. I mean, and there's a heads up too, right? It's just you want to don't 
drive your wife crazy and just when she asks you how it was, say, fine. At least say it was terrible or something. Helpful, whatever. Okay, so three principles for leading your wife in child rearing. Number one, um, turn to Ephesians 6 4. And, and a couple other verses here too, but um, Ephesians 6 4 and Ephesians 5 25, though. They're real close to each other. Some is maybe obvious, maybe not. Ephesians 5.25 says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her. That's wife. Children. Ephesians 6.4 Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So, Paul just boils it down to a verb for each here. A verb for your wife and a verb for your kids. Your wife, you love your wife. You love your wife. Your kids, you bring them up. Bring up the kids. Love your wife. Now these these words in the Greek, love and bring them up, are active words. They don't just happen. So the first principle here is take initiative. The first principle is is take initiative. Fathers must take initiative and fathers must specifically take initiative in leading their wives through this. This isn't just that we can show up and it's going to happen. And our wives will be loved and our kids will be brought up. We have to actively pursue these things. We have to take initiative. So I see this happen quite a bit. I've been guilty of it. Take initiative. In regards to your wife, do not sit around and wait for things to happen. Have you come home from work and that's waiting for you on the other side of the door? It's, it's crisis mode. I mean, it's, it's, it's bad. Well, it didn't get bad. That's what we want to think. But it didn't get bad in an hour. It usually got bad because we weren't taking initiative and, and checking in with our wives and talking to our wives and, and listening to our wives. And now it's, now it's bubbling out. Don't wait for your wife to bring things up. Anticipate. Don't get in the pattern of waiting for your wife to break down and then adjust and wait for it to happen again. <laughs> totally been there. You don't want that to be a, the pattern where you just kind of maintain things until she just has its crisis mode and she's just totally discouraged and she's breaking down and then you adjust some things and get you know get things back on track and then you kind of take your hands off and, and until the the next time that, that that happens. Remember, we're imitating God the Father and we are a picture to our family of Jesus. What does Jesus do? He takes initiative. Romans 5.8 God shows His love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He takes initiative. So again, because of God, how God constituted marriage, every husband all day long were teaching about Jesus Christ to our wives. All day long. 
we're either telling the truth about who Jesus is or we're, that's the mystery of marriage in Ephesians 5. We're either telling the truth about Christ or we're lying about Christ. So if I do not initiate, then I am lying to my wife uh, about Jesus and I'm lying to my kids about God the Father. I, I, will, I will tell them, I will teach them that Christ is lazy, that He is busy, that He is disinterested, that He is anger, capricious, unholy, and on. So some practical, practical ways to initiate. Practical ways. What does this actually look like? Um, instigate discussions about wife and kids with your wife. Instigate discussions about your wife and about the kids with her. Do not wait for her to bring them up. If you wait for her to bring them up, it is not going to go. It's not going to go well. Some of you can evaluate that. You know, how how often is my wife bringing things up? Is she only bringing things up when they are bad? Think about what does God say to us? Are we only supposed to bring up the really big, you know, things, or when it's really bad, we go to Him? Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything with prayer and petition, present all your requests to God. Oftentimes, if our wives are, you know, what we would consider dumping on us, because that's how it can feel, just like a, and then the, the truck goes up like, good night, I can't even breathe right now. Typically when that happens, okay, if we're going to be responsible and take a look at it, we haven't been proactive the way we should be. This did not come out of nowhere. It didn't come out of nowhere. We pursue our lives like this. Uh, one, of the, one of the benefits, of course, is that she will feel loved. She will feel loved. You know, check in, maybe check in daily with your wife. Just check in every day with her. How are you doing? Um, how are the kids? Uh, what are you What are you anxious about? What are you worried about? Uh, anything Anything you're afraid of, you know, or fearful of right now? Uh, how are you sleeping? Um, you know, what did you eat today? You know, are you, are you drinking enough water? Um, yeah. Sometimes you get home at the end of a day, and, and if you've got so if you've got little ones, you know, she's just She's talked to little kids all day, and she just needs to talk to an adult. We don't want to drive her to Facebook. <laughs> you know, we don't want her to get you know to get all that from from others. We want we want to provide that. Um, so uh, initiate those um, discussions and those conversations, maybe even daily. Just carve out a time, whatever works for your wife. First thing in the morning. You know, maybe in the middle of the day, it's a phone call. Uh, in the evening, when you come home, you know, some of your wives might be tricky. Okay, my sweet wife, she's tricky. She's tricky. You know, you, you need to answer that. You need to ask these questions at the right time of day. She gets up in the morning. She wants to spend time with the Lord, not me. <laughs> I had a hard time with that at first. That's a good thing. That's a good thing. So me sitting down with her and, you know, asking her a hundred questions in the morning. That is, that is Psalm 103. That is not considering her frame. That's just when I would like to do it because I'm a morning person. And, hey, let's talk. And um, In the evening, okay, my, 
my wife is not going to have a conversation in the evening. Okay, she's just spent 18 hours chasing 10, 9, 6, 4, and one and a half around and, and stopping all manner of evil. <laughs> and so when the kids go to bed at 8.30, we got, we got about five minutes, like T minus five minutes, and she is gone. She's gone. She's tired, exhausted. So I got to check in during the day. I got to check in during the day. So ask, ask your wife, uh, be proactive. Um, beat her to the punch. Uh, plan a date. Dates can be great things. Uh, and as well, and, and, you know, not just initiating with your wife here, but initiating with your, uh, with your kids as well, with your, with your children as well. Uh, so you don't want your wife or your kids to feel like they have to chase you. You know, there were times in my marriage where Kristen said she, she felt like she had to chase me. Uh, you don't want your wife to have to chase you. You don't want your kids to have to chase you. Think about the time you spend with your wife and the time you spend with your kids. Who initiates it? Because if you're... And what does that say about Christ? I mean, if the only time that we're with our wife and with our kids is when, when, when they initiate it, okay, regardless of how cheerful we are during you know, our, our time together. Okay. I've got to talk dad into this. So in, initiate time with your kids, you know, take them out, go on a date with your kids, you know, initiate a conversation, um, spend some time with them at bedtime, read to them, you know, different ways, but, but, but take the initiative. Okay. Two more leading your wife and child during number two, honor your wife's weaknesses. These are much more quick. Honor your wife's weaknesses. Okay, she, your wife is, is weaker than you are. Um, not just in, in many ways. She is, she is weaker. She is the weaker um, partner. Uh, you, have the, uh, you have the authority. 1 Peter 3.7 speaks of this. So likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. Showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. So we want to honor our wife's weaknesses. Well, practically, one of the ways this comes out with 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 kids is that. Um, so the uh, dad has authority in the home. The dad is the one who's been given by God authority in the home. Uh, and mom's authority is derived authority. So mom, she gets her authority from who? From, yeah, from her husband, from dad. So dad has the authority um, and, and, and dad, you know, delegates, gives authority to his wife, to the mother of his children, so that you know she can manage them when he's when he's gone, when he's away. Okay, when you're home, this kind of goes along with that. When you're home, you're taking responsibility, you're taking initiative, you're dealing with the the children. Uh, but she has a derived authority that that, that that you've given her. But one of the ways that uh, that a that a mom is 
weaker with kids than a dad is, is and especially with little boys. Little boys respond differently to mom than they do to dad. Okay, and they take dad more seriously than they, they take mom. Okay, it's, it's the curse, it's enmity, it's, it's struggle, masculinity, femininity. But I'm sure those of you who have kids, especially if you've had boys, you've seen that, you know, um, yeah, I mean, my, my boys are rebellious to me. Don't, don't get me wrong. But there are times where I can say something or do something, you know, come home from work and say something and there will be a, it'll, there'll be a certain response. And she'll look at me like, what the? Like, I have been trying to, you know, change this all day or get this. And things will just be, they will be different. So how do you honor your wife's weaknesses? Well, our our kids should always see dad behind mom. It's like when they're dealing with mom, they need to understand they're dealing with dad. You're not going to run over you're not going to run over mom. You're not going to be disrespectful to mom. And one of the ways that the most practical way we probably teach this is, is uh, to to never undermine, undermine our wives in front of our kids. Because if you if you under, you know, you've got a boy, you know, who's struggling with chauvinism. You know, who wants to um, re- rebel against mom. And think, well, mom's dumb and mom's out to lunch and mom doesn't know what she's talking about. And dad says we can pee all over the property. That's our deal. And (laughs) mom says, I don't want you peeing off the front deck. And they're like, it's okay. It keeps predators away. (laughs) No joke. And so she's, so I'm home and they're having this, this conversation. Now, if I undermine her at that point, if I undermine her and say, Honey, you just need to relax. It's not a big deal. You know, leave him alone. You don't know what you're talking about. It's a guy thing. <laughs> well, what did I just... I just set her up, didn't I? For as not honoring her weaknesses. Okay, that's not, that's not caring for her. It's not providing for her. It's not protecting her. It's opening her, her up. So always... Or another way to look at it is just always back your wife up with your, with your kids. Always back her up. If you've got if you've got an issue, take it up privately with her. Well you don't fight in front of your kids. Well you don't fight in front of your kids. Um, and if they find out about a fight or if they hear a fight, you know, because fights aren't always really quiet, you gotta go to them, don't you? And you gotta repent and explain yourself and, and tell them and make sure that they know that, you know, things are things are good now. But you don't fight in front of your kids, and you don't, and you, you you don't hang your wife out to dry. And you always, 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 always back her up. If you need to talk to her about something, just talk to her in private, but never address it in, in front of the kids. Always, always back her up, so that when they see, right, when they when they see their mom, right, you want like this this shadow behind her, like even when you're not there, they're still like you know it's dad. Instead, there's been many times where on my job, you know, it's just by God's grace, I, I can do this. I know a lot of you probably can't do this, but if you can, it's great. There's been times where I'm out somewhere, I'm working, and Kristen gets a hold of me, and it's like one of the kids is just gone ape. It's just out, out of control. And when I've been able to, I can come home. Now, that's a reinforcement. Like if you're a kid 
and you're dealing with mom and it's not going well and you see dad pull into the driveway and start heading for the house. That's an an oh-crap moment right there. (laughs) And then dad comes in. If you can do things like that, you know, or, or when you're, or when you're home with your wife, not, not only not undermining her, but just, but backing her up, giving her opportunity to just watch, you know, I'm watching how they're dealing with her and I'm going to give, I'm going to give this a little bit of time. I think, I think he's about to really, you know, sin against her. And sometimes you might even just give, give it a little so that you can, you know, come in and, and reinforce her so that they understand the deal. And then number three, Utilize your wife's strengths. Okay, so honor, honor her weaknesses, but utilize her strengths. Genesis 1, 27 and 28. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them, husband and wife. God blessed them and said to them together, you need your wife, guys, right? Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on the earth. And then later we read in chapter 2, verse 18, the Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So, you know, a wife might get, or a mom might get bent out of shape when she hears, what's all this weaker vessel stuff? You know, I don't like being the, the weaker vessel. Well, we'll keep reading. Okay, because you're gonna you're gonna you're gonna find some other truths that probably aren't gonna you know make you feel like a zero the way the way that might, and that is that there was one thing in all of God's creation that He said was not good, and it was the man without a woman. That was the one thing that was not good. It is not every. It is good. 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 And all of a sudden, like it is not good. What was not good for the man to be alone? So what was God's solution? He gave him a wife. Why do you give them life? So that they would have fruitful children. So we need our wives. Creation design is to function as male and female. We can't replenish the earth without her. So we can't. All right, we know that. <laughs> we can't multiply. We cannot multiply without our wives. But they're not just a womb. Okay, we also can't be fruitful. We can't be fruitful. We, we need our wives. This is what Malachi chapter 2 talks about. It talks about the covenant. talks about a husband and wife. And then it tells us, what. do you remember, what was God after? Godly offspring. Godly offspring. Malachi 2, 13 through 15. And the second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with... T- this is a great text, by the way. It is. It's rough. You cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning because He no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does He not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did He not make them one? with a portion of the Spirit in their union. And what was the one God seeking? This goes back, he's just repeating Genesis 1 and 2. What was the one God seeking in bringing them together? Godly offspring. Not just offspring, godly offspring. That's why the goal is the regeneration of our children. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. So we need a man and a woman for offspring. And we need them in covenant with one another for godly 
offspring. And God, we learn here, is interested in more than tears and sorries. Did you hear that at the beginning? You cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning. They're coming like they're just they're weeping, they're crying, and Lord, we're so sorry, and we can't believe we've done this. And he's just like, Your worship stinks. It stinks. I'm like, why? Why? And what is God's response? Where's my godly offspring? Where's my godly offspring? What did I tell you in the garden? Be fruitful and multiply. What did I tell you? He's addressing this to the man. What did I tell you? Work it and keep it. Provide and protect. So, utilize your wife's strengths. I'm, I'm, I, I hope you know your, your wife is how, how she is a helper suitable. But this isn't a, a lecture on wives, so... Um, so just a, a couple things now for final words. One, and this will be the, I'll, I'll say this again next week. And I read this and this was, this was helpful and it just kind of is a reality. Um, and I think it'll be really helpful next week when you go to apply this. Um, a lot of what we're talking about tonight is more, um, you know, theology. And next week will be more, okay, now, now what do we do? What do we do with that? Though there's been a lot of application tonight. But uh, just keep in mind that the application of this will start with some ice-breaking awkwardness and weirdness in your family. And you, we just got to get, we got to get over that. It was like, I can just remember the first time I did family worship with my family. I just felt like a goon, like a total goon. Like, who am I? I'm gathering the family around the table. I felt like we were a cult. <laughs> I'm gathering them around the table. You know, I felt like we should be, I don't know. <laughs> filter, filter came on. And I'm sitting around the table and, you know, I'm, I'm teaching them. And then we're singing. We're singing songs because God makes it pretty clear. We'll, we'll look at that. I mean, we should be singing together as, as a family. And we're singing and I can hear my voice and I can hear their voice and I'm just just not used to sitting around a table looking at each other and singing and it just was the most awkward awkward thing doing prayer requests around the table I'm asking my two-year-old just just so weird so first time I sat down with my wife you know and really started you know, I've got a list of, of questions that I'll you know and I'll I'll do some of them the first time I sat down and started asking her the questions I just I just felt like a dork just felt totally, totally weird, which isn't a good thing. But it was just weird. You know, how are you doing? How are you, you know, are you anxious about anything? She kind of looked at me like, what is this, a counseling session, you know? <laughs> I'm not one of your parishioners. <laughs> she didn't say that. Um, yeah, but it was just it was just awkward. So there's going to be, I mean, next week we talk about some of the, you know, the practical applications. There's just going to be some ice-breaking weirdness and awkwardness just, um, just, just just go for it as well a couple more quick things um uh initiating some of this you know with our families or or with our wives uh for many of us it is it is a a part of that is going to be repentance a part of it is 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 probably going to be repentance 
Um, there may be convictions set in tonight or next week that some things have not been done well. Uh, some things need to change. Some things need to be done differently. And it's good to carve out a new path, but we've also got to deal you know, with, with the past. Not stay there, but we've got to deal with it. Uh, and, and that may involve repentance. That may involve um, apologizing to our wives and to our kids. It may involve asking forgiveness from our wives and kids for uh, the way we let them yesterday, the way we let them 20 years ago, whatever, whatever it is. But it may start with repentance. Malachi 4, 5, and 6. The very end of Malachi. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Now, Jesus... We learn in Matthew, Matthew 11, I think. We, we learn who this is. You know, it is John the Baptist. Jesus says that John the Baptist has come in the spirit of Elijah. So Malachi the prophet, what he's talking about right here, he's talking about the time of John the Baptist and Christ. So this was something that was going to happen at the time of, of Christ. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So we live in an age now where God has declared that one of the things that He is going to do is turn the hearts of fathers to their children and then turn the hearts of children to their fathers. In Proverbs twenty-three twenty-six, we hear um, Solomon say, My son, give me your heart. He's asking for, for this, what what Malachi talks about. And what does he mean by that? He says, Give me your heart and let your eyes observe my ways. So put put that verse together with Malachi. What what does this practically look like when a when a child's heart is turned to their father, they're going to observe their father's ways. They're going to imitate their father. You have your child's heart if your if your child wants to imitate you. If your child wants to be like you, then you, you have your child's heart. So most of us would say, I want to be a godly father who has my child's heart. I want to be a godly father who is worthy of imitation. So go back to Malachi chapter 4 and just see how that works. What happens first? The child's heart is turned to the father or the father's heart is turned to the child? The father's heart must turn to the child. Turning. Repentance. We must turn our hearts to our children and pray that they would then imitate us by turning their hearts to us. That's how the imitation works. So, you know, keep, like, there's a lot of parents that need to hear this because it's just parents, kids, estranged. Okay, and what parent wouldn't say, you know, I, I want, I don't want this. I don't want this. I want to have my children's heart. Okay, well, what? Well, there's God's part in that. We have no control of what's, what's, what's my part as dad. My part as dad is to turn my heart to my child in hopes that in God's timing they will, they will imitate me in that and turn their, heart, turn their heart back to me. Wherever you are in this, if you do think that there are things that you need to, you need to repent of, um, remember that God's grace always meets you where you are, not where you should have been. God's grace meets you right right where you are with your baggage, with your sin, with your problems. God doesn't withhold grace because you're not where you should be right now. Write a garden of yes with just a no in the middle. Now God is a yes God. He does not withhold good things from His children. 
ever. And so, grace will, God's grace will meet you and enable you and help you right, right where you are, wherever that is. Wherever that is. Uh, be encouraged. Mark 2.17 says, When Jesus heard it, He said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So, if you're a great father and you've got this all dialed in, Jesus didn't come for you. Is <laughs> one way of thinking about that. Like, if you're just good, you got it nailed and you got it dialed in. What Jesus is saying is you actually don't have it dialed in. And you call yourself righteous. And Jesus didn't come for you. But he came for the, he came for the, the dads who are sick and uh, the dads who are sinful and the, the dads who, who have got a lot that they're um, regretting and would like to do differently and like to change. And so change is, is certainly possible because of, of God's grace. Um, some of you, you know, you get discouraged when you hear this because you see yourself imitating your dad and your dad wasn't a godly dad and you're just, you just feel kind of, you just feel kind of doomed. But by God's grace, there's no, there's no reason that you are not the, the first of a long line of godly fathers. That's the hope in prayer. Let me pray. And, uh, Hopefully see you next week. Father in heaven, thank you for this night. Uh, and thank you for your word. Thank you, God, for, I know for me, proving that your word is totally sufficient. That your word has much to say about who we are as fathers, the task of fatherhood. You make it clear who we are, God. You make it clear what we are to do. And then, God, you, you offer this infinite source of grace to enable us for Your namesake to be godly fathers. God, we do not have uh, much to imitate. You know this. We do not have many examples. God, we pray that generations to come would have more to imitate. Would have more examples. We pray that You would raise up godly fathers now, Lord. So start with us. Start in our families. Start in our churches. And let us see the great and glorious call as men of fatherhood. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.